Father, we do come again to you this morning. We come to your word, and Father, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us by your spirit. Uh, Father, that you would speak through me by your spirit. Father, keep me from, from error or, or falsehood. And Father, we pray that you would uh, show us marvelous things from your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm always a, a little nervous to ask if uh, people have seen movies. I don't want to rely on American pop culture, but I think most of you, if not all of you, have probably seen one of the Mission Impossible movies with Tom Cruise. If you have seen one of the Mission Impossible movies with Tom Cruise, or I guess even if you haven't, well, those movies always begin the same way. Um, Tom Cruise's character, Ethan Hunt, gets a video message about a new mission that begins like this. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is... And then it goes on to describe some seemingly impossible mission that he has been given or some very difficult task that he must accomplish. As we studied the last few weeks in the life of Moses, this is not wholly unlike what happened to Moses. God does not appear to him in a video message, but a burning bush, and tells him to go rescue the people of Israel from Egypt. On the surface, an impossible mission, or at least an extraordinarily difficult task. If that was not hard enough in our sermon text for this week, we will see that God tells Moses that his mission will not succeed, at least at first. It will succeed in the end, but not at first. So perhaps, unsurprisingly, Moses is not so sure that he wants to accept this mission. As Pastor Ben preached for us last week, it, looks like, it looked like Moses wanted to take the path of Jonah and run away. He makes all sorts of excuses to God about why he is not the man for this job. But as we'll see this week, he eventually agrees to go. So though on the surface, Moses' mission seems impossible, there's at least one big difference between the mission that Moses is given and the missions that Ethan Hunt gets in the Mission Impossible movies. In those movies, the message always ends in the same way as well, by saying that if Ethan fails and that if he is captured or if he is killed, the government will claim no responsibility. It will claim that it did not know him, it did not approve of his actions. Well, not so with Moses. God promises to be with Moses every step of the way. And in fact, it would be God's presence with Moses that guarantees success. Because it would be God's power that would be at work. Success is in the hands of the Lord. Their rescue from Egypt, Israel's rescue from Egypt, would be an act of God's grace. Moses did not need to be some super agent like Ethan Hunt. He and the people of Israel, they simply needed to believe. Well, as has been the case each week as we have turned to the book of Exodus, God is making himself known in the events of Exodus. So as Moses embarks on his mission, God continues in that work. He continues to make himself known. And so with that in mind, I have three points for today's sermon. The first is God's sovereignty. The second, God's righteousness. And the third, God's grace. God's sovereignty, God's righteousness, and God's grace. And I think the, the main idea of these verses that we are going to study this morning is that God is gracious to his people, though they have disobeyed and are deserving of his judgment. God is gracious to his people, though they have disobeyed and are deserving of his judgment. 
And so first we're going to, to look at this idea of God's sovereignty. Uh, look with me starting in Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4 verse 18. Then Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, Please let me return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they are still living. Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now in Midian, the Lord told Moses, Return to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took God's staff in his hand. The Lord instructed Moses, When you go back to Egypt, make sure you do before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put within your power. But I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. And you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. Look, I am about to kill your firstborn son. So again, as as Pastor Ben preached for us last week, the text for last week was all about Moses' doubts all about his questioning of God after God told Moses to return to Egypt. Uh, he questions God. He tries to wriggle out of his predicament. But as we saw that God was gracious to Moses even in his sinful unbelief, God chose to answer all of his doubts. And so as verse 18 begins here, we see Moses has reluctantly decided to accept this mission that God has given him. And at verse 19, we see that that God's grace is present with Moses from the beginning. After Moses accepts his mission, God told Moses that everyone in Egypt who wanted to kill him is dead. Moses apparently made his decision to return to Egypt before he knew this information. So for as as much as we examined Moses' doubts last week, I think it is important that we stop for a moment to acknowledge his, his faith, however reluctant, in deciding to head back to Egypt. In the end, he he trusted the Lord, even though he may have thought that his life was in danger were he to return to Egypt. You remember that he had killed an Egyptian. He had to flee because Pharaoh wanted to kill him. Uh, And so there was a very real threat to Moses in Egypt, yet he chooses to return. But God is gracious to him and tells him that all the people who wanted him dead are, in fact, themselves now dead. Now, I've often told people that my moment of biggest doubt about whether I should marry Delane was right after we were engaged. And that probably sounds a little bit funny. It actually is a little bit funny. I just asked her to marry me, and yet that is the time that I doubted the most about whether I should marry her. But a few hours after she said yes, I think it was like the responsibility of it, the commitment of it, kind of hit me stronger than it had before. The proposal was kind of like a no-turning-back moment, and I found that to be a little bit scary. It may have been something similar was at work here with Moses. He had just asked permission to return. He is now committed. Perhaps this is a moment of great doubt for him, a a moment of even increased fear. I'm, I'm really doing it. I'm headed back to Egypt. It is his point of no return. And so God is gracious to Moses and encouraged Moses by telling him that everyone who wanted him dead has now died themselves. He was assuring Moses of his providential care for him, of his protection for him. So Moses saddled up the donkey and he headed back to Egypt. But notice that in verse 20 of our text, 
Uh, Moses makes sure to mention that he took God's staff in his hand as he left. Now, why is that detail included? It almost seems like an afterthought. Like, we get to the end, it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot to mention something. Like, uh, Moses also took God's staff in his hand. But throughout Exodus, this staff, God's staff, serves as a symbol of God's power. God consistently tells Moses and Aaron to hold up his staff when he sends the plague upon the people of Egypt. As we get to the plagues, you will, you will see that they are always holding up God's staff as the plagues come. Moses lifts up the staff when he parts the Red Sea. After their deliverance from Egypt, Moses uses the staff to bring water from the rocks. There's that famous story where Moses is on the hilltop and he has to have other people hold up his hands as they're trying to defeat an army. Every time the staff lowers, the army begins defeating them. Every time the staff is raised, the Israelites defeat the army that is coming after them. And so this staff is a visual reminder to Moses, but also a visual reminder to the people of Israel that it was God's power at work. It was not the power of Moses doing all these miraculous plagues. It was God's power. Moses was simply given the job of wielding or, or using the staff. He was a, a conduit of God's power. This is made even more clear in verse 21 as God instructs Moses that when he goes back to Egypt, he is to do all the wonders that I, that I, God, have put within your power. In other words, Moses was simply acting with the power and authority of God. So I think in these opening verses of our text this morning, we see God assuring Moses in two ways. By telling him that all the people in Egypt that wanted to kill him have died. He's giving him assurance of his safety as he goes back. But also by sending him with the staff, which is a, is a sign that God's powerful presence was with Moses. He was not alone. And so I think God's assurance here must have been an encouragement to Moses what what in what might have been a period of great doubt for Moses. Actually, I guess we could say we know it was a period of great doubt. We spent all last week thinking about his doubt. But they were also assurances that were preparing Moses for the difficult instructions that God was about to give to him. As we just saw, God told Moses to go and perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that God had placed in his power. But then in verse 21, God says this, but I will harden his heart, or Pharaoh's heart, but I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. And you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Look, I am about to kill your firstborn son. In other words, God knew ahead of time that the first nine plagues that he sent on the people of Egypt would not work and that Pharaoh would not let the people of Israel go. How did God know this? Because he would harden Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I want to just to stop there on that statement for a moment, to camp out there on that statement for a few minutes, because it is both a very difficult truth, but it's a truth that is key to understanding Exodus. It's a truth that is key to understanding the whole Bible. It's a truth that we're going to see throughout the Exodus. This is actually the first of ten times in the book of Exodus that it is written that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
So I want to quickly read for you two of those instances because they tell us the reason why God hardened his heart. So the first is in Exodus 10.1. In Exodus 10.1, this is what is written. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may do these miraculous signs of mine among them. Then again in Exodus 14.4, this is at the time of the, the Red Sea, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Well, it seems as if the, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart, was intended to bring God glory. It was a, a way through which God would make his name known. Because Pharaoh's heart was hardened, God would be able to perform all these signs and wonders to get glory over the gods of Egypt, over Pharaoh himself, over the, the people of Egypt. God's name would be made known to Egypt, to Israel, and to the nations. It was for God's glory. So there are ten times in Exodus God is said to have hardened Pharaoh's heart. But there are also a number of times in Exodus where it says that Pharaoh is said to have hardened his own heart as well. So to give one example, if you go to Exodus chapter 9, Exodus chapter 9, verses 34 and 35, this is written. When Pharaoh saw the rain, hail, and thunder had ceased, in other words, when he saw that one of these plagues had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart. He and his officials. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not let the Israelites go, as the Lord had said through Moses. So did God harden Pharaoh's heart, or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? I think we have to say, especially as we go through Exodus, is that both statements are true. The Bible teaches that both are true. What we have in Pharaoh and what we have in the Exodus is the somewhat mysterious interaction between God's sovereignty, so God's sovereignty, and human responsibility. So I want to briefly look at both of those ideas and show you briefly from the scripture that those two ideas are compatible. They go together. Scripture teaches both. They're not in contradiction to one another to say that God is sovereign and man is responsible. Uh, so first, I want you to see that God is sovereign over all things, including the human heart. God is sovereign over all things, including the human heart. Well, to say that God is fully sovereign over the human heart is to say many things, but it is to certainly say that it is his choice, it is his purpose of election, it is his choice who is saved. He chose to set his love on Israel and select them from among the nations. You can see that in Deuteronomy 7. He elects or appoints people for salvation. Not only that, it is his, by his work that those he have chosen are saved. So Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5. For he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. 
on the, the negative side of this equation, that means that there are those who are, are not elected or, or who are not chosen. It means there are those who, like Pharaoh, whose hearts are hardened. So I think when we, when we think about this idea that God chooses some for salvation, that God has electing purposes, I think this is the part that we have trouble with. This is the part where we, where we struggle so go ahead, for, go ahead and turn with me to Romans 9 for a moment. We're going to go back to those verses that Abby read for us a few moments ago. And so as a reminder, in Romans 9, the Apostle Paul is writing about God's purposes of election. He's writing about this very truth that I've been preaching to you for the last few minutes. He is writing about the fact that God chooses some for salvation and he does not choose others. So we're going to, we're going to pick up in verse 14 where Paul is responding to a natural objection to that truth. I think it's the same objection that many of us have, or at least the same question that many of us have. Is God unjust if he chooses some for salvation and not others? Well, here is, is what Paul says, starting in Romans 9, verse 14. I've got to remember to turn there myself. Starting in verse 14, this is what Paul writes. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, and this is from the Exodus, Exodus 33, I think, or 34, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Paul makes it abundantly clear in those verses, I think, as Exodus makes it abundantly clear. that God chooses to show mercy on some, but not others. The Lord shows mercy and the Lord hardens. Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has prepared everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of disaster. Paul writes that God actually raised up Pharaoh, he created Pharaoh, he brought him to power for this very reason, that his heart might be hardened so that God's power and glory might be displayed. In some mysterious way of God's wisdom, it was to make God's glory known. Look at what Paul writes in Romans 9, starting in verse 22. And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for his glory. Brothers and sisters, what is is Paul's answer to the objection that this might be unjust? Just look at verse 19 of Romans 9. You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Well, what is form, say, to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? I think if we're being honest, 
we would probably say that for us that doesn't seem like a fully satisfactory answer. But Paul says that it is God's right as creator to do with his creation as he pleases. Who are you, a man or a woman who God has created, to question him? So first we see that God is sovereign over all things to include the human heart. But the second part of that equation, the second thing that I think we see the Bible teach, the second thing that we see in Exodus with Pharaoh hardening his own heart, is though God is sovereign over all things, even evil, even the human heart, God is not the author or the cause of evil. All people are responsible for their own sin. So though God is fully sovereign and though nothing happens outside of his will, scripture clearly teaches that God is not the author of evil. James 1.13, we studied these verses several months ago now. God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. In other words, all people bear full responsibility for their own sin. And we see this in our passage in, in Exodus chapter 3, do we not? In verse 23, we see that Pharaoh will face a consequence for refusing to let the people of Israel go. His firstborn son will die. Pharaoh is to blame for his own hardness of heart. Pharaoh is to blame for not letting the people of Israel go. In Exodus, he has given so many opportunities to let the people go. Request after request, plague after plague, and yet he continues to refuse. And so he suffers the consequences. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In his, in his systematic theology, the theologian Wayne Grudem puts it this way, What scripture reveals to us is that God brings about his plan through the willing choices of real human beings who are morally accountable for their actions. What scripture reveals to us is that God brings about his plan through the willing choices of real human beings who are morally accountable for their actions. In other words, God is fully sovereign. People are responsible. God is not the author of evil. Now, how all these things are simultaneously true, how these things are all compatible, I will admit, I think, is something of a mystery and only fully known by God. But the Bible clearly teaches both. The Bible is God's word. It is without error. And so we affirm both that God is fully sovereign and man is fully responsible. And perhaps this, this illustration may help in understanding this a little bit better. So I'm a fan of the Liverpool Football Club. If you're from my area of the world, the Liverpool soccer team. I play in the, the English Premier League. Well, because I cheer for them, because I'm a fan of Liverpool, so are each of my four children. Now, I did not force any of my four children to cheer for Liverpool. It was their willing choice to cheer for Liverpool. But, but even so, you might say that in some ways I was behind their willing choice. It would not be, be wrong to say I had some level of control over their decision to cheer for Liverpool. And yet they were both free to make their own decision. They could have chosen to not cheer for a, a football team at all. They could have chosen to cheer for any other football team. They were free to make their own decision. Uh, but they, were, they freely chose to cheer for Liverpool. And they're responsible for that decision. 
Well, perhaps in a, in a similar manner, God is behind and over the willing decisions of his creation. So when we come to Exodus, it is right to both say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God ordained it in some way, but it was Pharaoh's willing choice. God was not the author or the initiator of Pharaoh's evil, but he used Pharaoh's sin and even ordained Pharaoh's sin for his glory. Now look, no no illustration of biblical truth or no human illustration of what God is like or his, or, or his choices uh, is perfect. They all break down somewhere, and, and this is one way that the one I just gave you breaks down. There's probably other ways, but this is one way that this one breaks down. The Bible teaches that we have all inherited a sin nature from Adam. By nature, we do not naturally love what is good. By nature, we are not Liverpool fans. No, by nature, we love what is evil, and we are opposed to God. In our sin nature, we are fans of Manchester United, Liverpool's bitter rival. In our sin nature, we love what is evil, not what is what is good. But it takes God's intervention, it takes an act of God's grace to change our nature and to convert us to love what is good, to make us Liverpool fans. It does not happen naturally. Well, if I were to, if I were to adopt a young child who was a fan of Manchester United, if I was to adopt a young child who was a fan of Manchester United, well, it would not be surprising that after spending some time experiencing my love, being part of, of our family, growing to love us as well, that he might change, that he might convert to being a fan of Liverpool. But apart from that outside intervention, he would probably remain a fan of Manchester United. Well, so it is in salvation. Apart from God's intervention, we will continue to love what is evil instead of what is good. Our hearts, they will remain hard. We need God's intervention, and we need God's grace. So I want to quickly just give you three things that you should take away from these truths that we've been considering for the last few minutes. This truth that God is sovereign, that God is sovereign over all things to include the human heart, that man is responsible for his own sin, that these two things go together. First, just rejoice in God's sovereignty. It should be a source of confidence to you if you are a Christian. Because God is sovereign, the work of saving, the work of salvation is his alone. And it's because of that that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not even the most powerful person in the world. Not even Pharaoh. John 10, verses 27 through 28. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Brothers and sisters, apart from God's sovereignty, apart from the fact that God is in control of all things, what would be the assurance of your salvation? The assurance would be your own strength. The assurance would be your own decision, your own power. But brothers and sisters, that is no assurance at all. Why would you be so certain of God's victory? Why would you be so certain that history is heading towards a certain end where God triumphs over evil? Well, if it was not for God being sovereign, there would not be a basis for that assurance. God's sovereignty is a source of assurance for Christians. So first, give God praise for God's sovereignty because it should be a source of great encouragement and assurance if you are a Christian. 
Second, give God praise for his mercy and grace. Like None of you is deserving of God's mercy and grace. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm guessing many of you have heard this before, but instead of asking, why does God not save everyone? And perhaps a better question to ask is, why does God save anyone? I give God praise for his mercy and compassion, and that if you are a Christian, God chose to show you mercy. That God chose to save you. And thirdly, and, and, and relatedly, do not boast about your own salvation. Your salvation is not a, a statement on your greatness. It is not a statement on your goodness. It is an act of God's sovereign choice, not your own work. All glory, therefore, belongs to God. So that's a, the first point of the sermon. It, sermon is God's sovereignty. The second thing I think we see in our text for this morning is God's righteousness. Look with me at verses 24 through 26. On the trip, on the trip to Egypt, at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him, Moses, and intended to put him, Moses, to death. So Zipporah, who was Moses' wife, took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet, and said, You are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him, Moses, alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. Now, admittedly, this is a bit of a strange story. So let me briefly explain. Moses and his family, they are headed back to Egypt. They they camp along the way. They, They stop and camp along the way. And the Lord confronts Moses, intending to put him to death. Why? That's because Moses has not circumcised his son as God had commanded Now, it's unclear why Moses had not done this. Perhaps it's because he had been living among the people of Midian. He had a Midianite wife. It was not their practice. So perhaps that Moses did not do it for that reason. We don't know. But God had given Abraham and his descendants the sign of circumcision as a sign and seal of his promises to Abraham that he reaffirmed to Isaac and to Jacob and to the people of Israel to include Moses and to distinguish his people to whom those promises apply. So one commentator provides a a helpful explanation of this text, I believe. He writes thus. At the heart of Moses' family, there was an offense against the will and word of God, who had commanded that Abraham, the covenant man, mark himself out by the sign of circumcision as the one to whom the promises of the covenant have been made. God had further commanded that the sign be given to Abraham's descendants, to include Moses. We do not know why Moses had disobeyed, but what we do know is this, that the Lord in effect said to him, you cannot go on in my service until you are right with me. Zipporah saw what the problem was, uh, how we are not so sure, but Zipporah saw what the problem was. But since circumcision should have been the father's act, she took the blood of circumcision and touched Moses with it, thereby associating him with what had been done. And suddenly, all was well, and the crisis was over. So what I most want you to see about this this strange incident that we come to in Exodus chapter 4 is that it points us to God's righteousness. God is, is holy and righteous. He calls his people to be righteous, to do what is right, to be holy as he is holy. 
God revealed himself to Moses. He had called Moses to lead his people. And yet in his righteousness, God was holding Moses accountable for what we might be tempted to think is a, is a small sin, a, a minor oversight, not circumcising his son. But God is absolutely holy. He takes sin seriously. If he were not opposed to any and all sin, he would not be God. Friends, this is a great example of what we were just talking about, that all people are responsible for their own sin. But it's also a great reminder to you that obedience matters. Obedience is important. And perhaps some of you are sitting there and uh, you are professing faith in Christ, but you've never been baptized, the sign of the new covenant. Well, I don't think that God is about to put you to death for not being baptized, so let me be clear about that. I don't think, you know, when you go to bed tonight, that is going to happen. But yet you should see that obedience matters to God. Baptism matters to God. Obedience following baptism matters to God. Holiness matters. If you do not even think your little sins matter in God's eyes, just spend some time this afternoon and this week meditating on these verses. The man that God chose to lead his people out of Israel was nearly killed because he had not obeyed by having his son circumcised. God calls his people to be holy. In fact, we must be holy if we are to be God's people. The great problem that we encounter in the Bible is that we must be perfectly righteous and holy if we are to be God's people. But none of us, none of us are perfectly righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. If you need any clear reminder that the wages of sin is death, again, just spend some time thinking on these verses this afternoon. The single biggest problem that every person on the earth faces is that they are sinners and that they have been separated from God. Your greatest problem is that you are not righteous and you are not holy. You might think your greatest problem is something else. You might be easily able to point out several things in your life that you would really like to see changed. Uh, several things that you could think could go better in your life. But if you were to be a Christian, you must see that your greatest problem is your sin before a holy God. Not just that you are a sinner, but there is nothing that you can do to make yourself righteous. You are a sinner by nature. You sin because you are a sinner. You are not a sinner because you sin. You fall short of God's standard. What is the solution? The solution is that you need God's grace. You need God to intervene. That brings us to the third and final point of the sermon, which is God's grace. Now, God's grace is is often defined as his unmerited favor or his undeserved favor. That's what unmerited means. God's grace is shown in the fact that he chooses to have mercy and favor on some When we do not deserve that mercy and favor, we do not deserve God's love. We do not deserve God's mercy. Remember, the great question is not why does God not save all people? It is why does God save any unrighteous people? The simple answer is his love, which is expressed in his grace toward us, his unmerited and his undeserved favor. As we think for a moment about God's grace, I want you to notice what it was that saved Moses in this incident. What saved Moses in this incident? Well, it was the blood of his son's circumcision applied to him. 
He was protected from God's wrath by blood. He was covered by blood. You could even say that Moses was saved by the blood that was applied to him. In God's grace, God made a way for Moses to be counted as righteous. In Genesis 15, when God made his covenant with Abraham, the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, because he trusted in the promises of God, which included the future promise of a redeemer, God counted that as righteousness to Moses. Through Moses' faith, or through Abraham's faith, excuse me, Abraham, not Moses, God counted that as righteousness. Circumcision was given by God as a sign and seal of his promises, the, the promises and the covenant that he had made to Abraham. And it was to be an act of faith, an act of trust in those promises as Abraham and his descendants circumcised their sons. As Israelites circumcised their sons, it was to remind them of these promises. It was to be an expression of their faith in these same promises, a commitment to, to trust in these same promises, a commitment to the Lord. If you know the story of Exodus, you know that this is not the only time that God's people are covered by blood or protected from God's wrath by the blood of another. On the night when God put the firstborn of Egypt to death, including the firstborn of Pharaoh, this incident that we see predicted in Exodus 4.23, I don't think it's an accident that we have these two statements that God's going to put Pharaoh's firstborn to death and Moses almost being killed for not circumcising his firstborn. I think it's no accident that they're going together here. Well, God told each Israelite on that night when the firstborn of Egypt was put to death to kill a lamb and to spread the blood of that lamb on their doorposts that the angel of death might pass over their homes and that their firstborns might be spared from God's wrath that was coming on Egypt. In his grace, God made a way for the people of Israel to escape. They were covered by the blood of a lamb. They were saved by the blood of a lamb. It was an act of faith for the Israelites to put that blood on their door, trusting that God would be gracious to them. We're going to come to this incident in, in a few months here in Exodus. Well, God credited the faith of those Israelites who spread the, door, uh, the blood on their door of their home as righteousness. He did not kill the firstborn in the house of anyone who obeyed, actually Egyptian or Israelite. It was not just Israel. I think there were some Egyptians that were spreading blood of the lamb on their doorposts as well. It was an act of God's grace to give the people a way to be made righteous. And of course, the Passover pointed forward to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Jesus is called the perfect or the spotless lamb of God. And like the Passover lamb was, was sacrificed on behalf of those Israelites who were trusting in God's promise. But Jesus was sacrificed on the, cross, on the cross on behalf of his people. Those who had placed their faith in God's promises. Those who had placed their faith in Jesus' redeeming work on their behalf. When you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus' blood covers you. Your sins are, are washed in the blood of the Lamb and you are made clean. In fact, when you place your faith in Jesus, the Bible says that you are given the righteousness of Jesus. His perfect holiness and his perfect righteousness is applied to you, and he takes your sin, you are given his righteousness. This is what theologians call the great exchange. Actually, we just sang about it, I can't remember which song, but what a glorious exchange. Well, it's this that we were singing about in that song just a few minutes ago. When you repent of your sins and place your faith in him, God credits Jesus' righteousness to your account. 
it gets deposited in your spiritual bank account. And he takes your sin upon himself. He withdraws your sin from your account and he places it on himself. He takes God's wrath for your sin upon himself. The solution to your sin problem is God's grace. You do not deserve it, but God did it anyway. God was gracious to Moses to give him a means to be placed in right relationship with him. That's not the only aspect of God's grace that we see in these verses. So so look with me briefly at these last few verses, starting in verse 27. Now the Lord had said to Aaron, go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and about all the signs he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the signs before the people. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and that he had seen their misery, they knelt low and worshipped. God kept his word to Moses. He, he, He sent Aaron to accompany Moses. He was kind and gracious to Moses, who did not feel like he had the ability to speak, who did not have the courage to go alone. When they arrived together in Egypt, they assembled the elders of Israel, told them everything that the Lord had said to Moses, and shown them the signs that God had given to Moses. We saw that last week. And in verse 31, we see that the people believed. The people believed. They were humbled by God's grace to them. And we'll see through the rest of the Exodus that perhaps this this faith that the people have is a a fleeting faith. But it says here in verse 31 that they believed. They were humbled by God's grace. They were humbled by the fact that God paid attention to them, that he had seen their misery. What was their response? They knelt low and they worshipped the Lord. They were undeserving of God's favor. They were undeserving of being rescued from the nation of Egypt. But God was gracious. So they responded by bowing down to him in humble worship. And brothers and sisters, a few minutes ago as I was preaching through God's sovereignty, I said one response was that we should praise God for his mercy and his grace. We should not boast in our salvation. And brothers and sisters, this response that we see from the people of Israel as Moses and Aaron should come to them should be your own response to God's grace to you. It should be your own response to to God's salvation. God sent his son to die in your place and to make you righteous, to do what you could not do. And that amazing reality, that incredible reality should humble you and cause you to worship. Brothers and friends, if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it should cause you to come to him in humble repentance because there's nothing you can do to save yourself. You could not save yourself, but God sent his son to save you. Brothers and sisters, what does it look like to respond to God in worship? There's many things that we could say. It certainly means what we're doing now, to to gather corporately as God's people, to offer him praises, to come to to sing our praises to him, to to listen to his word, to respond to his word, to pray, to come to him boldly to the throne of grace. It certainly means those things. But worship is not confined to your time at church. Worship does not happen once a week on Sundays. Your whole life, Your whole life is to be lived in worship to God. Worship is not a a once-a-week thing. Worship should be an entire life devoted to God. 
And so what I want you to see from this text is that a life of worship is a life of obedience. It is a life in which your attitudes and actions are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. A life of of worship is a life of holiness and and righteousness. Certainly a life of praise as well. I think we see in this incident with Moses here that it's a life of obedience. Your holiness is not what saves you. Instead, your, your holiness and your obedience is a worshipful response to what God has done for you. When you're saved, the Holy Spirit transforms your heart. The Holy Spirit gives you a new nature so that you want to obey the Lord. Therefore, a life of worship is a life of obedience. Not a reluctant obedience or like, I guess I have to. Not a questioning of the Lord like we saw in Moses. But a joyful obedience for what God has done. Brothers and sisters, God chose you before the foundation of the world. He has been so gracious to you. And as a result, your life should overflow in praise for what God has done in Christ Jesus. The great God who is in control of all things, who has created all things, has set his love on you. He knows you. That is amazing. So I pray that the amazing truth of the gospel gives you the desire to bow down and worship him. To respond to him in joyful obedience. If you do not know the Lord, it would give you a desire to submit to him, to know this God who is so great in love and mercy and grace, and to praise him. Let's pray.